Hello, this is Gerard Robinson. We have another show on the learning curve. And this show is going to be a little different than the others, not because education is somehow changed. It's just that the story of the moment really is the story of now and what's taking place across the country. First of all, let me offer my condolences to uh, George Floyd and his family. I mean, he's dead now, but his family, the memory of it. Uh, as I speak to you now, um, this funeral is taking place in Minneapolis. I've had conversations with friends of mine who live in the city, who I've known well, and they're equally heartbroken. I've had conversations with friends of mine, a number of them educators, who have to figure out how to talk about this. And this isn't the first time we've had this conversation. We've had it before, whether it goes back to uh, 2015, uh, Baltimore, uh, even earlier with Ferguson, goes back to conversations about uh, Trayvon Martin. But this really goes back to conversations about what I call riot and reason. Uh, there are a lot of riots, rebellions, up, uh, uprising, civil disobedience, whatever term you choose to use. Uh, these aren't new. And let's just put this in perspective. In 1967, we had the Kerner Commission. And that was put together by President Lyndon Johnson when he had to figure out what do we do with the riots that we've had in the country. Initially, 1965 with Watts uh, and then a year later um, in uh, Chicago. And Dr. King, at a speech given on the campus of the University of Berkeley, said that the Kerner Commission is going to be a physician's warning of an approaching death and a prescription for life, with no idea that 30 weeks or so later that he would be killed. And there were a number of riots across the United States. And that led to conversations about race. It led to conversations about justice, separate but equal, and other things. Fast forward to 2020, we're having the same conversation. But where I do find levels of hope are on two lines. Number one, we know more today about the important role of education and what it can play in preparing people to have constructive dialogues in ways that would have been tougher to have in 1968 or even 67. And number two, this is a time to move beyond political correct correctness and to move to human dignity. And that means that we just have to have conversations with people we don't like, who may look different than us, who are going to vote for different people in November, who may choose to not vote at all, who think that what people are doing right now in cities is appropriate, and others who just think it's immoral. It's not the first time we had this conversation, but I can tell you, when you link this to COVID-19 and the social distancing policy and the fact that people like 67 and 68 could not come together physically to talk, uh, these are tough times. And so this is, in fact, a learning curve and I'm so glad to be joined by Kara, who I know is someone who's interested in the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Gerard. And I, I would like to join you in expressing my condolences to the family of George Floyd. This has been, in so, it's been exceptional few months. It's been um, a very, very painful 
uh, week for for this country. Uh, but let's let's remember, I think, to the point that you're making, taking us back in history, that this has been painful centuries and decades for for many Americans. And in, as I listen to you talk, I'm glad to hear you express a bit of hope. I too am thinking a lot about the connections to um, to the murder of another black man, um, yet another, um, to our education system, to our literacy policies, to um, our criminal justice system, something in which you are expert. So we feel very fortunate to have you on. But I think for the first time in a long time, there's a, there's a part of me that thinks maybe um, more people in this country are waking up and starting to see and realize those connections. Certainly um, what we're seeing in Minnesota with um, what looks like, at least in the beginning of this process, law enforcement being held to account is in ways that in many cases they have not been, uh, is, is encouraging. But there's also another part of me, Gerard, that thinks, I really hope that this is not just the same tape playing again and again on repeat and that we have a moment of collective mourning, express our deep frustration and, um, and, and even disgust, I would say, um, but then go right back to business as usual as, as we all start to get our lives back in the midst of this pandemic. And so I'm wondering, given your view, if you think that this is a moment that truly begins to move us even incrementally more forward, um, do you do you maintain that kind of hope for this moment? We'll move forward one way or another, just because, as you mentioned, life will require us to. Now, will we move forward from what I don't know? So let's take, for example, if if the righteous indignation that we see is a result of another black man unarmed being killed then that's a story in of itself. And let's put this in perspective. There are 5,366 people who've been killed by uniformed police officers since 2015. 5,366. Of that, 1,269 have actually been blacks. Uh, If we look at black men in particular, it's 1,022 because there's more men. If you look at the number of black men who've been shot um, or, or killed, well, in this situation, uh, killed and unarmed, it's 122. That's 2% of all the black people who've been killed. I don't say that to trivialize it. That's 2%. But it's to put in perspective, is this about unarmed black men being killed or is this about black men and women being killed? But it's also a broader notion about what about whites and Hispanics? I know there's a disproportionate argument that more black people are killed than others. And naturally, there would be a disproportionate argument because there is a denominator numerator challenge. But I'm saying if we only make it about unarmed, then what about those who are armed? Because there are a number of people who, in fact, were armed. We're looking at 98 percent. But if we go that route, then that's a policing question. What about a question about criminal justice reform? You know, when you look at Minneapolis less than 10% of the police officers live in the city. And in 1999, the legislature passed a law to say, we're gonna ban the requirement that in fact you have to live in the city or the municipality where you work in order to live there and work. And so today it's less than 10%, but even when the law went into effect in 1999, it was 
majority of police officers who are white did not live in the city. So is there a question about requiring law enforcement officers to live where they work? Well, if that's the case, I can show you cities where police are required to live and there's also issues. So for me, it just depends on which lane we want to walk. For me, I'm going to call it criminal justice system writ large, because if you focus on police, you're going to overshadow the educational aspect, not just of the people incarcerated. Is there a question about the educational needs of people who are going to become police officers? Do you require um, an associate's degree or a baccalaureate degree? And I've seen studies to show uh, that the number of people with a baccalaureate degree who are involved in the same type of altercations with uh, people they arrest is not as high as people who do not. I'm not saying it's always the case. But for me, it's, it's criminal justice writ large. You know, I don't know how others are going to see it. Well, I have an idea or some others going to see it. But it just depends on what we want to do. And I'm more pragmatic than many people would think as someone who has a degree in philosophy. My goal <laughs> isn't to cook the ocean, to boil the ocean, to cook an egg. Yeah. I can't answer all of them. But for me, I'm still going to work the education lane. So, yeah, well, and that's part of what we do here, right? Uh, one, so in the education lane, I think there's this really, and you, you bring up this point of police officers living in being of the community. Um, and in there's a lot in the news today specifically about states and or districts reconsidering, rethinking policies that have police officers in schools. Um, uh, growing up, I never. I, I went to a very big high school, uh, five thousand kids or something like. It was insanely like people would look at it and say, "Wow, how how did that work?" I I don't really remember any police presence per se in that school, but yet I'm sure you go to. I think that we've seen it. Uh, you tell me increase. Probably some schools have always had police presence. I'm I'm left wondering about, you know, some people say uh, police in schools. Are, it's just a perpetuation of the criminal justice system in our schools, especially if they're disproportionately in school districts or schools um, where children of color are attending those schools. Um, and others would say, and may, but maybe part of the point you're making is if police officers are in the community, maybe they're, maybe they're sort of of a community if they are there in schools. Yet now we've got several... Um, and I, I don't know. I, I have no idea, Gerard, which one it is. But now we've got several articles saying, you know, like, for example, the Denver School District wants to begin mm -hmm. a role, a conversation about the role of police officers in its schools. Other districts across the country are thinking about this. So in that education lane, what's your take on on is it is it uh, we have to decide case by case basis? Is this something we need to think about? Why why should we be asking ourselves deeply? And we know we know part of the answer is that this country is also seeing horrific and tragic mass shootings, which is one of the reasons why so many districts have felt compelled to put uh, law enforcement officers in their schools. Do we are we thinking about this problem in the right way? Um. The people who are responsible for making decisions would say they're thinking in, in about it in the right way. Um, I'm agnostic on this one, not because I don't have an opinion, but this one has been debated and won in state legislatures and local school communities for over 20 years. There are school systems that actually allow um, principals, or I should say school building administrators, to carry guns. Um, I saw a video of school administrators explaining why they do so. And this was one or two years ago. So this is already this was taking place beforehand. Uh, you have states 
who have police officers versus resource officers. Are the resource officers armed or not? Um, it is also, there's also a legal aspect that technically you can't have police officers on a campus because they're trained to work with people who are adults, technically over 18. So there's some nuances that are very state and local. So my recommendation would be, I don't have a great answer for you other than to say, take a look at your city or county school policy as it relates to resource officers and go to your state uh, legislative webpage and take a look and see what's in your code uh, because they vary, they vary across uh, town. What I hope, what I hope does not or will not flow out of this, is the idea that there are no reasons whatsoever to ever have resource officers in schools. You know, I think and read about why people make decisions about choice, even in the public school sector. Safety is a factor. Look at the civil Absolutely. rights database Absolutely. that was in place before the current president was in. Just take a look and see the number of people who filed complaints on a number of areas. And some parents says, I'm saying parents said, I'm done. I'm gonna put my child in another school that's safe. So I don't want to go to homeschool. Yeah. Or I'm going to homeschool. Right. So we should have an opportunity to think about all of these, but grab on to two where we're in a position to do something about we as individuals or like with you, your nonprofit or me, the ones I'm affiliated with. You know, Gerard, in, in just a moment we're gonna talk to Commissioner of Education, Jeff Riley. And we got a lot of policy people that listen to this show. Um, you and I have spent careers in policy. And I've been left thinking about, you know, uh, my colleagues, we, everybody's, it, it's been a really painful week. But one of the things that we, more than a week, one of the things that we've been discussing a lot is how is it that we use the work that we do to really attempt. And when I say the work that we do, it's thinking through education policy, um, homing in on the parts that work and the parts that don't, thinking about access, thinking about uh, K to three literacy policies in different states to ensure that, you know, kids can, kids can read, which we know if kids can't read by grade three on grade level, that's a huge indicator of, of their life outcomes. Um, thinking through what are those policies that we need to keep improving, hitting, and, and especially in terms of educational access um, for for all kids. And we know that as, as long as we've beaten that drum, it's not a thing. And this there's nothing that's made that more starkly clear than this pandemic that still there are too many families in this country who don't have access to a high quality education, which, which then predicts their life outcomes. What policies from your commissioner's perspective, did, do you want to see us really thinking through changing, hitting out of the park going forward if we're going to try and continue to make a difference with education? All the policies that I supported prior to the death or the killing of Floyd, every single one remains today. So for me, this isn't a policy change. What people are really wrestling with is a change in their awareness about blackness and whiteness in America. And as a result of that, a number of my white friends are trying to figure out what can I do more of? Well, continue to do what you were doing beforehand, the work of reform. For my African-American friends, many of us have been doing the work but continue to work. 
I don't think this situation in any way changes what we did before. It just may bring more urgency to get it done. But don't drop one for the other. Well, maybe now on one end, um, we should not open more charter schools. Uh, maybe what we should do is that's not where I am. I support people in whatever they want to do. I'm still walking the same path before. Yeah. Well, I feel very lucky to have you as my co-host on this podcast because, um, you know, a lot of wisdom uh, to Bowman's Life These, and thank you for, for this conversation. Well, let me also say that I want to thank you for being uh, my co-host. You have wisdom to offer as well. Uh, you've seen the work. I know you're committed to it. And so this is definitely a tag team process. And in situations like this, I'm going to tell our white friends right now, don't allow, don't make your black friends the sole spokesperson because you feel mm. you can't say something. You are white. You are human. Whatever term you want to use, your voice matters too. Obviously, there are times when you say maybe your voice work, uh, work better than others, not you per se. But don't use this as an opportunity to push your African-American friends in the forefront when before then you were providing the funding, the platform, or the opportunity to have a leadership position. So if you didn't invite them to the takeoff, don't invite them to the crash landing. Be honest about it. But if you want them to be involved, just understand that. That was great. So coming up, we are going to be speaking, uh, taking a little bit of, of a turn, um, speaking to Commissioner Jeff Riley, um, the Commissioner of Education here in Massachusetts, so home of Pioneer Institute and my home as well. And um, we will talk to him uh, perhaps about this, but certainly about what it means to uh, be in charge of a state education system in times like these. So we'll be right back. And we're back with Commissioner Jeffrey Riley. He is Massachusetts's 24th Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education. Commissioner Riley's experience spans urban and suburban districts and includes teaching in Baltimore, Maryland, and in Massachusetts, being principal of Tingsboro Middle School and of Boston's Edwards Middle School. From 2012 until spring 2018, Riley served as the superintendent receiver of the Lawrence Public Schools. Riley holds a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Pomona College in California, a master's degree in counseling from Johns Hopkins University, and a master's degree in school administration planning and social policy from Harvard University. Commissioner, thank you so very much for speaking with us on the learning curve today. Thanks for having me. Well, I think that we feel very lucky not only to have the commissioner from um, from Pioneer's home state, um, but also to be speaking to a commissioner of education in these unprecedented times. As I just told you, I, I can't even begin to envision um, how your job is right now and how it must um, change from moment to moment as you try and make the best decisions you possibly can on such limited information. So, so let's just get right to it with the first question. Um, this is this is a moment that probably you never could have envisioned when you took this job, um, and 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 I'd like to know just what what you feel you are up against right now as the person you know charged with overseeing education in this state, specifically with regard to what COVID nineteen um, has brought upon us, our students, our teachers, our schools. Sure. So you know when we think about this. Um 
I don't think anyone obviously expected this to happen. And we had to operate really quickly and figure out what's the best way to maintain our educational community. And what we've done is we've kind of broke it into phases. The first phase was really in the first week where we sent kids home and teachers home, made sure that they were safe. We set up uh, one, over 1,400 feeding centers to make sure that our kids were fed. Uh, and we asked schools to provide activities which were more enrichment um, than standards-based. And uh, we did that because we were just under such a rush to, to get our kids home and safe. And um, as we got to phase two, which was really in week two, uh, we were able to get the superintendent's association, the school committee association, the PTA and the two unions to endorse guidance, uh, which basically kind of set the rules of the road for remote learning. And when we thought about it, we recognized that some students did not have access to online learning. Some of that may have been financial. Some of that may have been because of in remote parts of the western part of the state, the topography is such that um, folks just can't get broadband. And so when we defined remote learning, we defined it more broadly than just online learning. We said online is one part of that way, uh, but we also thought that project-based learning uh, is an acceptable method. We recognized that sometimes uh, districts even had to do uh, work packets or reading lists. And so in week two, uh, that guidance uh, was endorsed by all of those organizations and we kind of got going. Uh, we also released specific, specific guidance for special education students and English learners. And we began the process to apply for basically state and federal waivers around everything from uh, nutrition to finance to even the possibility of needing it for testing. Uh, and we got people home and settled and the teaching process began. Um, our guidance at the time was to not go forward and teach new standards in, in that second week in March. We felt like people really needed to get settled into the process and that it would be better for both kids and teachers uh, to do that very thing and to just teach the standards they've learned in the first two thirds of the year. Uh, when we recognized that this closure was going to extend, and I think initially there was some hope that this would be a short-term closure, but when it became clear that the closure was going to extend even through the end of the school year, we kind of entered what we call phase three, where we asked districts uh, not to teach all the standards, but to go forward in their teaching beyond what they'd already taught and to teach what we consider to be the essential standards. That is, what are the standards that kids need to be prepared to go to the next grade level? Uh, there was some guidance from the federal government that said we should try to cover all the standards. I felt it was more prudent to take an approach where we really kind of laser-like focused in on what are the crucial standards that we need our kids to know to be able to get to the next grade level. Uh, and so our guidance came out, our new set of guidance came out around that. There was guidance around grading for high school. Uh, we certainly applied for the CARES Act to be able to get monies in to help districts pay for things like PPE and technology. Uh, and we, you know, all along we have been doing some data collection from districts about their remote learning plans and their needs and things like that. The last phase, which uh, we haven't officially entered, but we've already begun, is what I call stage four, which is the plan to reopen our schools. And while stage three really goes to the end of school year in June, we've got to be mindful that we are really hopeful that we can begin some type of in-person summer learning uh, later this year. 
Uh, and then also, what does a reopening look like in the fall? And is that going to be um, driven by the trajectory of the virus? We think it is, but we need to be prepared for all contingencies. And when we think about it, we think about it on a continuum where on the left-hand side, in red perhaps, is this idea that we'd have to stay in remote learning. On the right-hand side at the far end is green, and it's this idea like we're just back to school uh, as if it was pre-pandemic era and we were just having school. And in the middle in yellow are options around hybrid learning. There may be a need to uh, do some in-person instruction and some remote learning. And so what we're doing is um, creating models about all possibilities that we can give districts as we get ready to first start summer and then again start, think about how we can start in the fall. Yeah, so I imagine your days aren't very full with all that on your plate. Um, one question I have, Commissioner, and you, you touched on this a little bit, is, is really goes to this idea that um, this moment, one of the things that's shown us, um, and push back on me if you'd like, is that high-quality remote learning is something that all states probably need to be thinking about, whether we are lucky enough to be back in school face-to-face, or you have to go to that third option you described where everything is remote. Now, traditionally, Massachusetts hasn't been um, virtual learning, and again, push back on me, but compared to some other states that experience a lot of natural disasters, for example, virtual learning hasn't been one of our concentrations. We certainly lead the nation in in a lot of other areas. Explain to us how you're thinking about you. You touched upon the access issue and the and the big challenges that that you faced initially in in trying to make sure that all kids have access. And on top of access, there's also the quality issue. And we know you care deeply about quality. Can you talk a little bit about um, your thinking around ensuring that all children will have access to high quality online instruction, whether it's hybrid or full time, going forward? Yeah, sure. I really appreciate the question. I would say, you know, look, Massachusetts has been, to your point, a top performing state when we compare our kids nationally and even internationally. And I think we've done that by using a frame that had the Department of Education setting out really rigorous standards, but we didn't necessarily tell districts how to get there. Uh, This idea of local control, which is something that we believe in in Massachusetts. And, And I think it's been the right frame for us. Uh, because we believe in the talent that we have within our schools. Um, And we trusted them to reach that bar, and they've been able to do that over the last 20 or so years. Unfortunately, um, that frame, um, that decentralized approach is not without some drawbacks. And so when the pandemic hit, it was clear that we would need to do learning remotely. And we knew that not all districts were prepared to seamlessly flip a switch and move to you know, what people call digital or virtual online learning. Uh, so we did a few things, right? I mean, I think the first thing I did uh, on the weekend before the governor made the announcement uh, was I actually drove over to WGBH and um, was able to make contact with them uh, to ensure that students that didn't have access to online learning would be able to access educational programming on television. And GBH did an amazing job of uh, Yes, they did. Up. They did. <laughs> um, and so I just can't say enough about them. Uh, and then we really began that survey uh, process for our districts to find out what their technological needs were. We began to match donors with districts uh, to begin to fill holes, while at the same time kind of working with tech providers, legislators, foundations, and other state agencies to kind of build capacity. 
Obviously, the recent CARES Act money uh, will be helpful to districts to sort out some of these problems. Uh, and I think while we've worked uh, at DESE with partner organizations um, on a variety of issues, the one that has probably been most helpful during this time is trainings for teachers to get acclimated to online learning um, so that they're uh, better able to uh, provide education and instruction in a way that works in this kind of new technological world. To that end, we've also put out an RFR to identify partners who can help us further with this work. And that could be uh, including technical assistance to teachers, PD, or even a uh, uh, online platform and or supplemental materials that, that teachers can use so that the quality is there um, when and if we have to continue with any type of remote learning. Well, thank you for joining us. This is Gerard. I hope all is well with you. It is. Thank you for joining us. Well, I've uh, been in your seat, so I know how tough it could be at times. So I want to congratulate you and thank you for the hard work that you're doing. So my question focuses a lot on uh, vocational education. Uh, your state's been, or Commonwealth's been a great leader uh, in the K-12 space. You've also had some wins in Votech. Uh, there's a lot of conversation right now about really preparing students not to go directly to college, or if they do, to go to a technical or community college, or to actually take um, CTE courses, certification otherwise, while in high school. Talk to us about your role in this work and maybe what the future is going to look like for us. Well, I really appreciate that. I would say that um, as someone that was an administrator in a vocational technical high school, uh, and I consider myself to be a vokey, and so that kind of education is near and dear to my heart and also translates to also what I think about when we talk about deeper learning in Massachusetts, which we might have a chance to talk about later. Uh, but what we know in Massachusetts is we've got a real demand for seats in vocational education. And so one of the first things I did when I took over in this new role was to create an after dark program where um, districts mm. who had wait lists were able to take some of those kids who did not get in to a vocational school uh, but wanted to go and allow them kind of a second bite at the apple. And here's how it happens. And so prior to my taking on the role as commissioner, I was a superintendent receiver in Lawrence and we knew the value of career tech education and we knew some of our kids didn't get in because of the demand. So what we did for some of our high school students at Lawrence High was set up a program where they could come in and take their traditional academics uh, later in the morning at like 11 o'clock or noon for you know three hours or so. They get their academic classes in and then we'd put them in a bus over to the Lawrence Vocational School. And we did that because the VOC at that time, they were letting their high school students out for the day and their shops had gone dark. And what we basically did was we relit the shops and allowed uh, even more kids to be able to get that vocational training that they craved and wanted to do. And by doing that, we were able to kind of set up a mechanism whereby more kids had an opportunity to get this vocational education. And we've now brought that statewide. The After Dark program is up and running uh, in, in many places. Uh, and we hope to continue that work while doing the longer term work about expanding the footprint of some of our vocational schools uh, and you know, upgrading the facilities and the like. We just really believe um, in vocational technical education. We believe in promoting pathways for career education. 
Um, we've got our Innovation Pathways program, and we really want to um, continue to preach the message that um, what happens in education should be directly related to what happens in the world. When you survey high school kids, um, they complain about two things. They complain about the food, which we're not here to talk about today. And they complain <laughs> about being bored and saying, what does this have to do with the real world you're sending me into? And the only place that survey doesn't hold across the country is in uh, vocational programs where they can actually see uh, what this has to do with the real world, whether they're in a culinary program, a hotel and hospitality program, automotive, they see and get the work experience they need and the education they need. And so I just, I'm a big supporter of that and, and we look forward to continuing uh, to do more for our kids in that space. As someone who's a techie, you must hear people say, listen, I want my child to get a real job, one that requires use of their brain, as if somehow working with your hands and your brain that there's some type of disjunct. What do you say to that parent? Yeah, it's interesting, right? I think um, for, for a long time, vocational schools weren't seen, at least in Massachusetts, uh, or held in the same high regard that they are now. But somewhere over the last 10 or 15 years, I think we've actually seen parents recognize the need for vocational education. And look, I mean, if you want to get an addition built on your house, if you need your car fixed, uh, these folks are making real money and they're doing critical jobs that are, you know, incredibly important to society. Absolutely. So I, just feel like, I just feel like there's been a shift. There's always going to be some naysayers and the like, but you know, there, we've got kids who are able to come out of a high school and get great paying jobs. Um, that are going to be in demand in the future. And I think, you know, we're living in a time of, of uncertainty and economic uncertainty as well. And so I think uh, vocational education is going to be even more and more in demand as we go forward. So one more question um, before the end of your time with us, Commissioner. Um, as you already cited, you were the state-appointed superintendent receiver for the Lawrence Public Schools, where you really had excellent success. That district has turned around dramatically. Uh, this spring, the state released a, a lengthy and a very detailed accountability report on Boston Public Schools, something that um, that you know, those of us who watch know that you have been focused on, um, upon needed improvements in that school system. Obviously the world has changed a lot since, um, since that report came out. Uh, but we'd love to hear just in, in broad stroke, your plans, the state's plans for, for BPS, for the changes that you would like to see. And, and will any of those reforms look like what happened in Lawrence or will they be different? Sure. So, I mean, I guess what I would say is a few things. One, uh, you know, we're, we're proud of the progress made in Lawrence, but we recognize, you know, there's still a lot of work to do. Nobody's um, patting themselves on the back, but, you know, the, but we do recognize progress has been made uh, in the city and we're very proud of the community, how they kind of joined in with us to make those changes. Uh, but education, as you know, is a process and we're always trying to get better. Uh, I guess what I would say is I think it's dangerous to assume that any type of model can be transferred uh, automatically to another context. Um, I vividly remember, remember telling um, the previous commissioner not to try to replicate the Lawrence model in other cities and towns. My belief is you build a plan that works for each unique community. Uh, and so as to Boston, we at the state did a comprehensive, nearly 300 page report on the school system. We found a few bright spots, but, but more than that, we found some pretty glaring structural problems. 
So we put together a plan that we think matches the need. Uh, where the plan does track more closely to the Lawrence work is at a high level around its approach. And I think specifically what we did in Lawrence and hoping are to continue in Boston is this idea that we work with the system and the community and not try to do something to the system or the community. Uh, in Lawrence, for example, we heard over and over again when we got there about the, the broken windows and the bathrooms without doors. And so we got to work right away in fixing those those items. And because we did that, we were able to build up trust uh, and we were seen as a value add. And that a similar approach, I think, is being used in the Boston MOU, where we listen to parents about the bathrooms, the needs for more teachers that kind of better reflect the school district's demographics, um, things like ramping up early college opportunities for their children. Um, and we're going to bring resources to bear at the state for Boston, both technical and financial to help the district get those things off the ground. Uh, but at the same time, we haven't abdicated our oversight responsibility. And so we need to hold the district accountable for things like improving its lowest performing schools, right? Uh, we've cited in the report 30 schools in the bottom 10%. We need to see improvement in that. Uh, we need to reduce the overrepresentation of African American and Hispanic children in substantially separate special education programs. Uh, we need to make sure the buses run on time. And so we are also holding them to account for making those improvements. So it's kind of a both-and approach, which I think is reflective of what we're trying to do here at DESE. DESE is always going to be a compliance organization, but there has to also be a role where we support our school districts. And that's what we want to do in Boston. Well, we're rooting for Boston. Um, Commissioner, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. We know you're a very busy person and it uh, means a lot that you would spend a little bit of time with us here on The Learning Curve, and we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much. And we're so lucky to have another phenomenal guest with us next week. We'll be speaking with Carol Boston Weatherford. She's a New York Times bestselling children's book author. She's won the Caldecott Honor Book Award. And she is a Coretta Scott King award-winning biographer of Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer. So very excited to speak to her next week. Gerard, until then, thank you for all you do. Stay safe. And, uh, and I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for all you do. Look forward to speaking to you next week.